1: Welcome to the Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna.
2: And I'm Amber. And thanks, y'all. If you if you're listening to this in listen real time and you listened to last week's, you'll know you won't know. I'm telling you, that we <laughs> We made it to 50 patrons. We did it. <laughs> we exceeded it. Thanks we did. to thanks to our new patrons, Estuardo and Mike. Thank um, you.
1: Thank you, both of you. Yeah. We're not going to tell you which one was actually number 50.
2: We don't really know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but because this happened, patrons, remember to update your address on Patreon if you wish to be sent a little something as a token of our regard.
2: <laughs> Regards. The dirt. Uh, so this week for everyone... We mm-hmm. are bringing you a squeakwell. <laughs> That's right. We've spent almost as much time trying to come up with titles as we have, like writing this week's episode. But it's Thanks Viking 2, The
1: Vikinging. Which just edged out so many dumb, dumb, dumb options. Thanks Viking 2, Electric Bikaloo. Personal fave. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Thanksgiving 2, Too Fast, Too Viking. No, that wasn't it. What was it? It was two thanks to Viking. Oh, that is better. Too fast, too.
2: We literally okay. talked about this two okay. minutes ago. <laughs> so last time we we thanks Viking. This was all the way back in episode twenty three, like one million years ago, almost a hundred episodes ago. Which, yikes! Yeah. So hopefully the joke held up. Oh, thanks, Viking. We're laughing. Um, yeah, we're still laughing. Um, but way back then, we talked kind of broadly about Viking art, culture, history,
1: ships, and mythology. <laughs> we did. And this year, we're going to dive a little deeper into who the Vikings really were. Some of the historical context for their Vikinging. It's a verb, in case is you it? were wondering. It yeah, is? To, yeah, it, it comes from yes, it's a verb. So yes. my dumb title it, like works grammatically. Yes, nerd. It's like a, it's like a,
2: it's a (laughs) gerund.
1: Wow. Well, might as well end the episode here. (laughs) Good night, everybody. We learned something. We're also going to talk about archaeological evidence for some aspects of how the Vikings saw their world. And this is also a book club episode because the folks at Basic Books Press were kind enough to send us copies of Neil Price's massive book. so big. Here's the noise of that book hitting this desk. The book itself is titled Children of Ash and Elm, A History of the Vikings. And hey, if you're publishers of archaeology books or, you know, publishers of archaeology books, we will always accept review copies, please. And thank you. Hit us up at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Or if you write archaeology books and have a publisher. Yeah. Hey, we want to talk to you and talk about your book. So to start with. Let's talk geography and chronology very briefly so we can situate ourselves in time with some context about what was happening in other parts of the world that affected the Norse populations. And just for additional context, we're going to be using the words Viking, Norse and Scandinavian kind of interchangeably. They all overlap and there are some kind of differences, but you'll hear all three of those words. So mostly when we talk about Norse people or Vikings, we're talking about populations that lived in what is now Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. Iceland is going to figure in as well, especially when we talk about the Eddas and the Sagas. The Viking Age in all of these places roughly corresponds with around 750 to 1050 CE. From about 500 BCE to 750 CE – So. 1250 years ish. We've got early and late stages of the Scandinavian Iron Age. These are subdivided depending on which region you're talking about, but that's not really important for our purposes here. The Viking Age is associated with a lot of mobility in these Norse populations and with the longship raids that gave us the name Viking in the first place. So there's a lot of disagreement about where uh, the term Viking actually comes from and what its actual translation is, but it roughly translates to sort of piracy or pillaging or raiding or even just voyaging. So to go a Viking is, yes, it's a gerund. Good job. So there are multiple factors that contributed to this period, the kind of switch over to the Viking Age. And it's neat to see how seemingly unconnected political and climatic changes added up to contribute to what we see in the archaeological and historical record. So throughout this episode, in a few places, I'll be reading from Children of Ash and Elm. And so here we go from chapter two, Age of Winds, Age of Wolves. Uh This book is so big. This book is very big. I'm like holding this giant tome. Quote. The Viking Age did not begin with the famous raids on the West, with long ships beaching from rough seas to chase the English and frighten the clergy. It did not even begin with Vikings, a label that sometimes obscures more than it illuminates. The world that ash and elm would populate took shape long before, centuries further back in what archaeologists refer to as the Iron Age. In order to understand the Vikings, it is first necessary to uncover their own past. The Scandinavians of the first millennium were living in the shadow of their world's only superpower, the Empire of Rome, in its heyday and also through its long, slow decline. The imperial border ran along the Rhine, cutting through the lands of the Germanic tribes not far south of Denmark. Cross-frontier trade and exchange of ideas and attitudes as much as commodities had been a staple of Scandinavian life for hundreds of years, especially among the elites. As the Western Empire started to fall apart into the 5th century, this too affected the North. In Europe, Roman power gradually dissipated and unraveled, taking new forms, breaking up old structures, and setting events in motion that convulsed the continent. People were on the move, as militarized expeditions, as streams of refugees, in any way and for every reason that human beings leave their homes to seek new lives somewhere else. At the same time, Roman authority was partially absorbed and enhanced by its imperial twin to the east, what would later be termed the Byzantine Empire, with its capital at Constantinople now Istanbul, not Constantinople. New politics and new politicians were on the rise and making their presence felt. These networks of influence and contact also reached Scandinavia, and the people of the north were always intimately connected with their surroundings. The overall impact on the Scandinavians of these convulsive changes to the south was one of instability, of change, but also of opportunity, often for the few at the expense of the many. What archaeologists have long identified as the migration period from the 5th to mid-6th centuries included protracted crises with far-reaching effects. Their impact was further accelerated by a terrifying climate disaster that no one could have foreseen, causing mass mortality in the north." So thing one that is contributing to this kind of new age from the Iron Age is the slow decline of Rome and the kind of knock on effects that this had to every culture with which Rome was connected. And, and this was a big empire with lots of connections. And so this is this was felt in the Norse world. But this the second piece of the puzzle is, I think, maybe the most interesting quote. A growing body of collaborative work between natural scientists, historians, and archaeologists has revealed something else in the mix. A short sequence of events so enormous in scale and impact as to make them initially question if they could be real. It began with the environmental analysis of ice cores sampled from both Greenland and Antarctica, and the identification of significant layers of sulfate aerosols, the material that results from volcanic eruptions. More and more evidence accrued from multiple proxies clearly indicated either a single climate event or perhaps several within a short number of years that together took on major proportions. Initially, the findings were dismissed by historians, one calling it the latest great disaster theory. This swiftly changed. After years of patient work around the globe, volcanologists and climate modelers are now sure. In the years 536 and 539 to 540, there occurred at least two volcanic eruptions of almost unprecedented magnitude. The first of them may have been somewhere in the tropics, although the location has not yet been pinned down conclusively. The second was at Lake Ilopango in today's El Salvador, an explosion so vast that the entire volcano collapsed and left only the flooded caldera that can be seen today, large enough to contain the capital city. It is estimated that Ilopango alone produced up to 87 cubic kilometers of ejecta, a figure big enough to induce double takes in even the most skeptical authorities. So cubic kilometers, 87 cubic kilometers. Oh, my God. The sulfate emissions may have measured up to 200 megatons, significantly higher than those from Tambora, which was the second greatest eruption in history. And that's what caused the year without a summer Uh, around 1815. Yeah. Yeah. The Ilopango eruption was among the 10 largest on earth over the past 7,000 years. And remember, this was preceded by the 536 volcano, which is as yet undetermined where that originated. So new research also suggests that these may have been followed by a third major eruption in 547. The effects were devastating as the ejecta and sulfur dioxide aerosols reached the lower atmosphere and began to circle the globe. The sun's light was blocked in a hazy mist that allowed no heat to penetrate, while at night the heavens were filled with wavering curtains of fiery color, like a sunset that went on for months. Um, If you picture Edvard Munch's famous painting, The Scream, those skies that he painted in that painting are a result of the Krakatau eruption. Yeah. So... Yeah. So that's it's more than a reflection of how Edvard was feeling that day. Um, it's a real depiction of what the skies over Europe looked like as a result of the Krakatoa eruption. Oh, my God. Scientists refer to this phenomenon as the dust veil. Oh. The impact was not unlike that of a nuclear winter. Trees began to wither, their growth stunted, as seen in the Dendrochronological Record. Unseasonal cold gripped the northern hemisphere with snow in the summer months visible in the Norwegian high-altitude data. The weakened sunlight most directly affected plant life of all kinds, including crops, quite literally taking out the food supply. Written sources from China and India describe harvest problems and disrupted weather patterns. The environmental evidence is consistent from North America to mainland Europe. In the Mediterranean world, writers among the Goths and other militarized imperial successors described the famine, riots, and slide into civil unrest that resulted from the failed harvests in the endless winter. So estimates of the population loss across Scandinavia as a result of these either two or three eruptions rise as high as 50% a number considered reasonable by both volcanologists and archaeologists, with tens of thousands starving to death as the major food sources simply ceased to exist. So this is this combined with the political unrest that was a result of sort of Rome's decline. And again, the knock on effects of that. This is the impetus for the Viking Age.
2: Was Rome's decline prior to like was Rome in decline before? I think you know, so. Like I half, think this was just I've, our dirt after dark listeners will know that I know something about Roman history. <laughs> um, but like Rome was like <laughs> on, a, on a downward slide for a long, right. long time. So I guess right. I kind of answered my own question. But um, this is this is incredible. So the, the
1: first of the volcanoes is 536 BC, uh, 536. Mm-hmm. So Rome was heading down the hill. Yeah. Down stumbling. all seven hills. <laughs> Thank you. Rome joke. Um. <laughs> <laughs> but that is incre- like that I that is one of the most interesting things. I had to go back and read that section in the book again because the climatic data and yeah. the other proxies for what was happening, they all line up. And so there's no reason to think that this didn't happen and the impact is Massive on a global scale. Well, so, and it's and it's sort
2: of it's it's almost kind of circular. Mm-hmm. You know, if if there's an, what amounts to an economic issue like across multiple polities and societies that are interconnected, um, and sort of political instability, mm-hmm. it can be compounded by uh, it can be compounded by sort of environmental issues. Which, if these polities are ill equipped to Handle them; mm. mm-hmm. they can further History. be compounded. Cyclical.
1: What? Ah, mm. well, I—I I really backed right into that, didn't I? <laughs> you really did. Um, so, to continue, Amber, this yeah. is really cool because we might even see a record, a lingering memory of this volcanic nuclear winter in Scandinavian religion and mythology itself. Ah, great. This is very exciting. Also, I would like to pause here to apologize
2: for my roaring furnace and my slapping laundry in the washing machine and my <laughs> hacking dog. All of those things have happened in the past few minutes and have cut through my headphones, so I'm sure other people have heard them too.
0: We'll see how much
2: future
1: Anna can snip out in Oh post. my God, this is just really... <laughs> Shameful. Talk about peaks behind the curtain. Oh my God. We're humans who do stuff. In a
2: very small apartment. (laughs) Um, So this was something of a cultural reset. Yeah, that's what happens when half your population dies. It's easier to reset when you've only got half of you. And it may have been such a devastating event that it left a mark on Scandinavian religion itself. In what scholars refer to as geomythology. Oh, my God.
1: Yes. Yeah, I knew you'd like this part. I knew you'd like this part. This is why I gave you this section.
2: <laughs> Where natural events and disasters are given meaning in a cultural sense through sacred stories and myths. One of the better known bits of Norse myth, especially if you're a Marvel fan. I've I've heard that people
1: like Marvel products. Um <laughs> I know you're not one. I I assume at least some proportion of our listeners are like, oh, yes, Marvel.
2: Right. Because they're just a member, members of like humanity. (laughs) Yeah. They've um, been on the internet. People like it. Um, and that's fine. It concerns the end of the world, the cataclysmic final battle in which gods and humans will perish, known as Ragnarok. Um, the description of the conditions of Ragnarok and Scandinavian epic poems is actually quite specific. Here's an excerpt of a Norse Edda, and that's an epic myth or historical poem. And it's written by Icelandic poet and historian.
1: And politician. And just politician. Like, this was in the 1100s when you can be eight things at once. I mean, if you were <laughs> a man. Also, like, the population in Iceland is quite
2: small, so... Mm, they needed... Yeah, this, like, everyone like, had to multitask. triple up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, And that is Snorri Sturluson. There's no umlauts or anything, so I guess it's Snorri. It's snorri. First of all, that a winter will come called Fimblewinter. Mm-hmm. Then snow will drift from all directions. There will then be great frosts and keen winds. The sun will do no good. There will be three of these winters together... And no summer in between. Oh. Mm -hmm. (laughs) This distorted triple threat winter is remarkably similar to what researchers suggest would have been the immediate effect of volcanic eruptions. Uh, There are other poetic texts from Iceland and Finland that describe similar things, all in the context of describing what the end of the world will be like.
1: Yeah, it's all like the sun will cease to warm the earth. There will be a darkening. Everything will get cold.
2: And speaking, this is this is great as we go into Nove- the end of November. <laughs> it's chilly. Um, and and speaking of poetic texts, let's talk for a minute about Eddas and sagas because these pre-Christian and also and sometimes also post-Christian, well, peri
1: christian yeah, um, mid mid-Christian, yeah, post-Christianization. Um, How about that? Yeah, um, mm. texts. Provide us with a lot
2: of information about the Norse perception of the world, mythology and religion, and even sometimes historical events. The collection of poems known today as the Poetic Edda or Elder Edda is the most mythologically rich and thorough of these texts. Oh, come on! Two you don't of have these to pronounce. Poems. Them. No, I'm gonna do it. <laughs> Two of these poems. Fulispa, sure. The insight of the Cirrus and Grimnismal, the song of the hooded one, are the closest things we have to systematic accounts of the pre Christian Norse cosmology and mythology. The name Edda has been retroactively applied to this set of poems and is a reference to the Edda of Snorri Sturluson, which I just talked about. I just excerpted. Yep. You're going to talk you. about him again. Great. Uh, the authors of the poems are all anonymous. Debates have raged over the dates and locations of the poem's composition. All we can really be certain about is that due to the fact that some of the poems are obviously written in a manner that places them in dialogue with Christian ideas, um, especially the Voluspa, the poems must have been composed sometime between the 10th and 13th century CE, when Iceland and Scandinavia were being gradually Christianized. Uh, The sagas were written primarily in the 13th and 14th centuries and recount the lives of famous Icelanders, Scandinavian kings, and Germanic folk heroes. Their literary style is as stark as the landscape of Iceland. (laughs) Events are described in a terse, matter-of-fact way that leaves much to the imagination and intuition. Just like a Bjork song. Theater of the mind. Ah! (laughs) When elements of pre-Christian religion are mentioned... It's almost invariably casually and in passing, as opposed to the more direct manner of Snorri and the poets. The most notable exception to this is the first several chapters of the saga of the Inglings. Is it Ying? The saga. It was, it's probably Yinglings. The saga of the Inglings. My, <laughs> My college, college years. years.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh no. <laughs> I mean we did spend them together so it makes yeah. sense which give a thorough exposition of the character and deeds of many of the Norse deities albeit in a humorized yep that's a new, that's a new word you humorized adjective trying to rationalize mythology by casting it as an exaggerated account of ordinary historical events context mhm um this so that's like the idea of like saying Gilgamesh was perhaps a a leader of a of an early urban like site or like group of people and then he sort of became. A mythical Mythic? figure yeah is it or it like
1: that? how yeah it's like or the it's more that the idea of the history of a place can be traced back to a, a mythical kind of founder who is cast as a, a deity or like a, a a more than human okay character
2: okay it um, sort of goes
1: both ways i guess
2: yeah okay So this same technique is used in the Prose Edda, which should be unsurprising since the Saga of the Inglings was also written by Snorri. (laughs) Virtually all the other sagas, however, are anonymous, Uh, but they're still considered a part of the record of Icelandic history and to some extent that of the larger Viking world.
1: Yeah, so Iceland has one of the most uh, the longest continuous historical records because of these sagas. So to some extent, they do describe historical events and um, I, kings of rulers of Iceland. But then it keeps going back to mythology. Okay. So at some point, it kind so, of okay. fades into so, the mist.
2: So it's not unlike the Sumerian king list in that there mm-hmm. are like the post-Diluvian kings that were actual kings. But like the anti-Diluvian you, kings are just you go like...
1: You <laughs> li- Who were they?
2: Uh-huh. And like Gilgamesh is one of them. Yes. OK, so it's sort of there's a point... Before which you're just like, well, (laughs) yeah, pretty much.
1: That's
2: "That's my understanding. Okay, Okay, great. Well, awesome. Let's take a break. Let's.
0: It's Chris Webster again. If you haven't checked out our new parent website, culturomedia.com, then please do. Culturo is spelled K U L T U R O, and it's where we promote all of our live events. We've got one coming up in November. Check it out over at Culturo when it gets posted. If it's already happened and you're hearing this, then as a member, you can go to your member pages and see the event recording. Our live events are always free, but you have to show up during the event to see it. So that's CulturoMedia.com for all our live events and more. KulturoMedia.com.
1: We're back from our advertising expedition, and the other big thing that I wanted to talk about in this episode was the Viking perception of the world, because the way that the world of the supernatural seems to have blended with the ordinary everyday experience of living was something that I wasn't familiar with, and I really enjoyed reading about it in Children of Ash and Elm. So Neil Price describes a concept of Viking religion tied to everyday life, and Amber, here's another vocab word that you're really going to like, and that is religilect religiolect. religiolect. Yes. In religio-lect. his words, just as a dialect encodes a local variant of speech, this term does the same for religion, combining belief and practice in a discrete package that could be activated in particular places or social social situations. Specific regiolects might be linked to an ethnic group, the followers of an individual, or a set of contextual circumstances in which specific kinds of spiritual expression were manifested or required. A religiolect constitutes differences not only in ritual practices, but also potentially in their underlying ethics or dogma. These variations also cut across other aspects of society, including status or sex, the outdoors or the domestic space, and so on. They capture the core of diversity in the Viking landscape. So with that diversity and the way that everyday Viking existence was more or less saturated with magic and the supernatural, it shouldn't come as a surprise that the Norse and medieval sources on Viking sorcery, which is in heavy quotes because it's, it's called that in medieval texts, but that has a distinctively anti-pagan whiff about it, like sorcery. Um, anti-pagan whiff seems like... The, like,
2: Yankee candle that my grandma would have at her house. (laughs) To keep out the boogans? Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Um, But that kind of sorcery describes a lot of variation in types of Scandinavian magic and ritual. So I want to talk about a specific aspect of that from Children of Ash and Elm, and that is gendered magic, specifically lady magic. Oh. Mm. The highest, most terrible magic, the kind that fell within the skill set of Odin and Freya, who taught it to him, was Seder. It could be used to see the future, predict fate, improve the harvest, or fill a fjord with fish. Wow. That's I Fill a fjord with fish. That's very pleasing to say. Seder could both heal and harm. It could bring good or bad fortune. One could use it to talk with the dead. It could be employed to seduce, charm, or reduce a person to sexual submission. Seder could confuse and distract at a fatal moment, or fog the mind with terror. It could strengthen the limbs or disable them, give someone godlike dexterity, or reduce them to stumbling uselessness. It could make weapons unbreakable or brittle as ice. Seder could injure, it could kill, and with it, one could raise the slain. It was the magic of the battlefield, the farm, the field, the body and bedroom, and the mind." There was nothing coincidental about its associations with the divinities of war, sex, and intellect. So with that, so this this idea of, say there this this um, incredibly powerful magic that kind of suffuses north myth- mythology and was very much a part of how everyone kind of experienced their daily life. I want to talk about some archaeological case studies that illustrates the issue with interpreting Viking sorcery through the lens of Christian textual sources. Because like I said, you have the, con- the connotation of sorcery being kind of having connotations of, of evil magic or sort of deviant magic. And so this idea of deviance is one that you see in kind of early interpretations of Viking burials that seem to have a ritual aspect about them. And there are a lot of them. And so I'm pulling here from an article by Veronica Donato, which is called The Sorceress's Stone colon deviant burial in viking age scandinavia so i've excerpted and paraphrased here scandinavians during the viking age practiced many different forms of burial one burial practice found in many parts of the viking world involved the placement of large boulders on the body of the deceased and because of this archaeologists classify these as stone burials Furthermore, archaeologists identify these burials as deviant, interpreting the use of stones as punishment for the deceased. Scandinavians typically used stone burials for women, and based on the grave goods at most of these sites, these women can be identified as sethkona, or sorceresses who practiced the magic known as Sether. I really hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. I apologize if I'm not. Donato investigates these stone burials, but says, quote, First, I must say a few words about the identification of these women and the classification of deviant burials. Then, through an examination of the textual and archaeological evidence, I will show that although these burials are unusual, they do not indicate punishment or deviance in a negative way. Rather, the stone burials display acts of awe or reverence. So first of all, the association of this practice of sailor with women has its roots in Norse mythology. So although Odin was the first to learn seidr and was taught by Freya, the Inglinga saga, so Snorri's saga of the Ynglings, explains that when humans, specifically men, practiced this magic, ergi, or unmanliness, tended to follow with it such that men were ashamed to be practicing this magic, and therefore seidr was taught to women. This is probably because this type of magic was also associated with spinning and weaving, which Pops up a lot, like the fates in Greek mythology, mm-hmm. or the idea of Sleeping Beauty you know, on a magic spinning wheel. Spinning and weaving often have magical associations, and they're also women's work. So, like toxic masculinity made womens this- the magic. <laughs> yeah. Archaeologists identify Sithkona by their Sithstaffer or magical staff that typically is buried with them and often resembles a distaff used for weaving. These staffs also often resembled spears or swords, or in one instance that I found, so click on that link there, Amber. Uh, a really nasty looking sharp metal hook at the end of a staff. I just want you to look at it because it looks badass. I'm having trouble finding the thing that you sent to me. Ah! Okay, found it? Yep. <laughs> okay, yeah, it just it looks very scary. Very intimidating. The first one that we're going to talk about is Grave A505, discovered at Trekroner Griedhoyer. I did my best. In Denmark. <laughs> it's kind of hard when the word ends in a J, and I don't know what to do with it. Based on the grave goods present here, archaeologists date the site to the 8th and 9th centuries CE. This is an inhumation grave, 180 by 280 centimeters and 50 centimeters deep. An inhumation grave. That just means... A burial. A- burial grave. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. with the body of a woman aged between 25 and 30 years in a supine position and aligned north-south. Next to her body was a wooden bucket and a wooden chest, which contained two knives. At the foot end of the grave lay body parts of a sheep and a bisected dog with a standing stone placed over its hind end. Next to her body and draped over her left side was a horse, a, a dead one. On top of all this, encompassing the upper... 30 ish centimeters of the grave were six stones, two large stones, approximately one half meter in diameter and four smaller stones. So these are hefty. Like that's not a one person stone. It's very heavy. Found deposited directly over the grave were fragmented bones and body parts of a human male and female. So here's the second grave site. So another inhumation grave. Well, no, this is a ship burial. Ah. So technically not an inhumation. Uh, This is at Kaupang in Vestfold, Norway, and it dates to the 10th century CE. This site contains a ship aligned southwest northeast, which held at least four people, two females, one male and one infant. The man, infant, and one of the women lay in the prow of the ship. The woman had her right hand on her breast, her ankles crossed, and her feet pointing towards the prow, with her head resting on a stone like a pillow. She wore expensive clothing and opulent jewelry with a knife and key on her waist, which presumably hung from a belt. On her right side was a bucket and across her knees a weaving sword. So a, a, distaff, a, we- sword. a weaving distaff and a sickle lay nearby. On her left hip rested the infant and due to the positioning of her left hand, it was presumably on the baby's head. Lying head-to-head head with the woman was the man in the prow in a slightly twisted position. His upper body was supine, his legs flexed and bent to one side at his waist. On the man's abdomen laid an inverted frying pan, and next to him there were multiple weapons. Two axes, a throwing spear, a sheathed sword with the point facing his head, two knives, a wet stone, a shield, a quiver of arrows, and a sword scabbard with two spindle whorls carefully laid inside, and an iron dog chain next to him. Finally, the pieces of a shattered German made pot lay strewn over his body along with beads. Amidships was a horse placed on its back with its limbs and head cut off and rearranged anatomically and a spur thrown into the dirt that covered the body. The second um, woman. I'm yes. sorry, question. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. An inverted frying pan? I think it just means that the frying pan was laid so that the bottom was facing up. No, inverted isn't the issue there. (laughs) So it's like a frying pan.
2: Yeah, they had frying pans. It's just like a straight up frying pan. Mm -hmm. You know, this is after the Iron Age. They could do cast iron. Oh, one of our listeners, I'm pretty sure will be buried with her cast iron. (laughs) Uh,
1: But (laughs) so I get it. Once you season it, you don't want to let that go. No, you don't want to let it go. (laughs) Especially if you want to make, you know, biscuits in eternity. Oh, I do. Mm, Forever. (laughs) This, I I love all this description. And then the next sentence is, the second woman and the one who interests us lay in the stern of the boat. Who's she? (laughs) Who is she? Lay in the stern of the boat, either sitting up or with her back against the vessel. And it's possible that she held the steering oar of the boat in her hands. The textile found under her brooches indicates that she wore high-quality clothing and that she was wearing some type of leather garment, an unusual material for clothing at that time. Her lap held a bronze bowl inscribed with, in the hand basin, as in a basin that you hold in your hand, in runes, and the bowl contained a tweezer-like object, a gilt copper object, a copper alloy ring, and the severed head of a dog whose body lay at her feet. Placed to her left was an iron staff, broken into three pieces due to the placement of a large stone on top of it. This staff had a handle on the end resembling a basket. Not not a basket that you'd carry. It's like a basket-hilted sword, where it's like the sword has a handle and then a basket, kind of a woven metal bracket would cover your hand to protect it. Okay. Okay. On top of, on top of all of this, stones, dirt, and remnants of cremated bodies covered the burial site. Just so I understand
2: yes people inside a ship Mm -hmm. ship inside ground yes the iron staff that's broken into three pieces due to placement of large stone on top of it was the large stone placed on top like immediately on top of her and staff or was Mm -hmm. it placed on top inside the ship Mm -hmm. that then went into the ground as you have summarized, there's a lot going on here. <laughs> there's a lot happening. I just like was yeah. trying to understand like the deposition of like. Right. Because it's I a complicated of, picture. When you say like, like having like stones placed over like graves, I thought it was sort of like a Not monument or something. Nope. So nope. you wouldn't. So you.
1: As be, like, like paperweights.
2: <laughs> so so if if I were going to visit. The grave site of one of these individuals. If I would they were not still s- on the ground, no. If I were there, contemporary. Oh yeah, sorry. So yep. if I, if I were if I went to visit, like you know, my auntie who like got buried here was a sorceress. Yeah, auntie sorceress, and I went to go visit her. It's not as though I would I would like stand next to the stone that she was I, under. I don't believe you would. Okay, all of that would be buried.
1: Yes, that's my understanding. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I read, I read a few and we'll have links to these, these articles in the show notes, but I read a few articles that described burials like this and, and that's what, and I looked at the figures and I think that's what they're describing. Pretty sure all of this was buried or sometimes it's like in a mound,
2: Mm, but mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah.
1: So that's a lot. It's a very big hole to put a ship in. Yeah. Well, it's just so big, Mm -hmm. it's a big hole. But I mean, that's, again, this is going to go along with the points I'm about to make, but think about the labor that goes into that. Is that something that you would expend on someone viewed as like an outcast or? Yeah. Yeah. A deviant in the sense that, that these have previously been interpreted. So Donato makes a few main points in her article that I think are very interesting to think about, and in my extremely amateur opinion, are excellent reasons why it's not useful to think of Scandinavian deviant burials as having anything to do with punishing behavior or denoting an evil person or anything like that. So number one is the presence of those staffs. In many cases of burials of women where these staffs are present, they tend to have been deliberately broken or killed before burial. And this happens a lot in Scandinavian burials. It happens elsewhere. It happens in the uh, Mediterranean world um, where pots are killed before they're buried. Fantasy books. Well, yeah. Okay. Um, (laughs) This suggests that these were known to be objects of power. Okay. So you break the sorceress's staff. Does that mean you're defeating evil magic? Not necessarily. And the rest of the evidence points in the opposite direction. So I will come back to this. Number two, these women are buried with rich grave goods, high quality clothes and precious materials. That's a mark of reverence and certainly not something you'd do for someone you wanted to punish in the afterlife or deprive of, of luxuries. Number three is the consistent burial of these women with dogs and horses. The inclusion of these animals, especially horses, may be directly connected with Scythera. Horses belong to their own separate realm in Norse mythology. The horse was able to travel in and between all spheres, as in all the nine worlds that made up the whole of the Norse cosmology. The horse could also transport humans in the grave to the afterlife. Yes? I'm pretty freaked out by horses, so this tracks.
2: Okay. Well they're very big. They're so big. On their spindly yep. little legs, and they they got a lot going on. Like you look into the eyes of a horse like they've seen some they've seen eight other worlds (laughs) like this Uh.
1: (laughs) even more pragmatic than this so (laughs) back to stay on midgard here horses (laughs) horses represented high status not everyone had a horse and so to sacrifice one for inclusion in a burial meant that the person being buried was likely well regarded and of high social status Dogs also served as important companions to the dead. There are a lot of Iron Age sacrificial bog deposits in Sweden that contain dogs. Bog dogs? Bog dogs. Boggy doggies. Showing that dogs held religious significance well before the Viking Age, right? So Iron Age is pre-Viking. And so this is a tradition that continues from Iron Age to Viking Age. Just love dogs. I know, I know. What good dogs? What good dogs? What good dogs? What good good bog dogs? (laughs) And then a final point taken directly from Donato. Another reason why these burials do not appear to be the result of malevolent magic is the sheer size of the stones. The rocks are large, cumbersome, and presumably hard to transport. Why, then, was this time and effort spent on people whose society saw as marginal figures or criminals? To limit stone burials by implying that they were strictly used to punish or restrain is an injustice to the archaeological evidence presented by these sites. So about those broken staffs, rather than defeat or the idea of like depriving someone of their power, breaking the staffs likely indicated that these instruments of ritual magic were seen to have a life of their own and had died along with their wielders. So oh. having them broken in the grave was was essentially laying those objects of power to rest as well. So that's a lot to process. So how about we uh, take a quick ad break, come back and wrap it up?
2: we're back and I'm still a little choked up about the dogs I'm sorry I just love dogs <laughs> so it's not to love oh, all right let's wrap up by talking a bit about who the vikings really were vikings beyond the headlines uh, we all have a picture that comes to mind along with the word viking did you see that picture? And that picture is probably one of the reasons that Chris Hemsworth was cast as Marvel's Thor. He fits our expectations. But a genetic study that came out this year says, to the surprise of nobody who has listened to us before, that the real picture is more complex. Uh,
1: the title to this Nat Geo article is Scientists Raid Viking DNA to Explore Genetic Ew. Roots. It's like, come on. Ew. Ew. <laughs> it's really... Does not even work? <laughs> that doesn't. <laughs> I mean, maybe they stole the data. I don't know. <laughs> this genome is Lindisfarne Abbey. And we're. Nope. That just doesn't. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. A lot of bad jokes here. I'm sorry. That's kind of our thing. Eh,
2: well, some of our jokes are good. It's been a long year. <laughs> In popular imagination, Vikings were robust, flaxen-haired Scandinavian warriors who plundered the coastlines of northern Europe in sleek wooden battleships. But despite ancient sagas that celebrate seafaring adventures with complex lineages, there remains a persistent and pernicious modern myth that Vikings were a distinctive ethnic or regional group of people with a pure genetic bloodline. Like the iconic Viking helmet, it's a fiction that arose in the simmering nationalist movements of the late of late 19th century Europe. Yeah, we talked about
1: this on our first Thanks Viking about how the image of the Viking was sort of co-opted in unfortunate ways. Yeah. Um, Yet,
2: it remains celebrated today among various white supremacist groups that use the supposed superiority of the Vikings as a way to justify hate, perpetuating the stereotype along the way. Now, a sprawling ancient DNA study published in the journal Nature. Nature is revealing the true genetic diversity of the people we call Vikings, confirming and enriching what historic and archaeological evidence has already suggested about this cosmopolitan and politically powerful group of traders and explorers. The Nature Study brings together genetic data from 442 humans whose remains date from around 2400 BCE to 1600 CE, all buried in areas where the Vikings are known to have expanded. Some were simply located in places like Greenland, they were minimalist, uh, where they they journeyed. Others were buried along Scandinavian-style artifacts like coins, weapons, and even
1: entire boats. See, five minutes
2: ago. Yeah. (laughs) The DNA analysis revealed Vikings were a diverse bunch with ancestry from hunter-gatherers, farmers, and populations from the Eurasian steppe. The research also pinpoints three major genetically diverse hotspots where people mixed with people from other regions during the era, one in what is now Denmark, and one each on the islands of Gotland and Uland in what is now Sweden. All three locations are thought to have been hotbeds of trade at the time. Hotspots, hotbeds. The subjects also don't have as much in common with modern Scandinavians as you might think. Only 15 to 30% of modern-day Swedes share ancestry with the studied individuals who lived in the same region 1,300 years ago, suggesting even more migration and mixture of peoples after the Viking era. Nor did Viking-era residents of the region conform to stereotypical Scandinavian looks. The ancient individuals, for instance, had on average darker hair and eyes than a randomly selected group of modern Danes. Yep. While the Viking umbrella was broad, the study also revealed close kinship ties on the family level. At a burial in Salme, Estonia, where 41 Swedish males were interred after battle alongside two boats with their weapons, four brothers were identified, laid side by side. That's nice. Yeah, I mean, sad, but nice. nice. Circumstances weren't ideal, but... nope. Researchers also discovered a second-degree family connection between a Viking in a Danish cemetery and another in Oxford, England. Went to school there. Proof of how mobile <laughs> family members were during the era. He did a semester abroad and then also died. What the massive DNA just got bummed out. Sorry. What the massive DNA study cannot resolve, however, is the question of how the Viking phenomenon began in the first place. If ethnicity did not bind these people together, what did? Was it the technological ability to build seaworthy boats and wage war efficiently on the water or were other factors at play? I well, wonder if it has anything to do with the stuff that we talked about at the top of
1: the episode. It's it's a lot easier to find ties beyond kinship when half the population dies. Yeah, it's like we have we have this like
2: really great thing in common, which is not being dead. Want to go on this boat? Okay.
1: Well, we hope that through this squeakle, we have brought some depth to the picture of the Viking world. And of course, there's still plenty more to cover for Thanks Vikings in the future. So look forward to Thanks we- Viking 3 to the streets. Isn't that one of the step ups? Step up to the streets. Yeah. Haven't like seen it makes it.
2: sense. So no, you're, it's it would be Thanks Viking 3 season of The Witch, but we, are, we just did
1: it. We did season of The Witch. This was the season of The Witch. Ah, yeah. oh, well. Anyway, in the intervening time, perhaps more studies will come out that tell Thanks us.
2: Viking resolutions.
1: it <laughs> be the third one. Thanks. <laughs> anyway, we're going to learn some more, and when we do learn more about the Vikings, we'll do another Thanks Viking and tell you about it. Yeah, and check out the book. Yeah, it is, it's a really, really interesting book, and it's,
2: it's fun. It's, it's it's fun. It's, and it's so, so big. big. Like it's it so it, very big. It Arrived in the mail, and my dad's like, "You got something? It's big." <laughs> it's like, okay. Lo, a tome. I can speak as somebody who doesn't know diddly about Vikings. Like this book was very accessible. Like it's, yeah, it's 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 engaging.
1: It's it's really, the writing is really um, kind of exciting. My mom likes it. And it's not all like, you know, Viking fighty, fighty ship. It it dispels a lot of the myths and, and does tons of uh, references to archeological evidence. So that's the kind of stuff we like. The um the
2: four seasons is playing very loudly from upstairs. No, this is possibly winter. I think it's winter. It's winter. Yeah, just
1: like what is happening? It's the nuclear volcanic winter. Oh god. By Vivaldi. So if you play that three times It's Oh the Fimble winter. Um thank you for listening. And we hope you're hanging in
2: there better than I am. (laughs) Amber needs to go sleepies. Would that I could. So we'll be back with you next week with more content, which you can find as usual on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you like to get your podcast. Fun fact, last night I had a dream in which I said, I told someone that our podcast was available on Stitcher and they got mad at me because they don't use Stitcher.
1: Well, that's their problem.
2: I don't know why I had a dream about that. Hmm.
1: Something else that I want to mention before we end is that the GoFundMe that we mentioned in the previous episode that was set up by Mary Clark to help the folks in the Paten region uh, at the San Bartolo-Scholtun Archaeological Project has been doing so well. So if you are still able to donate, the link is still on our social media page uh, on Facebook and Instagram and on Twitter. And uh, there's still time to make donations if you can. If you're not able to go ahead and share those posts and, um, they're so close to their goal and we're just so pleased and, and, and gratified to have been able to share that and to um, help them reach their goal. And thank you to those listeners who, who, um, did, did contribute.
2: So some folks reached out to say they did. So yeah. So that GoFundMe is there and because, and you went, you went fund them and that was (laughs) really, really great.
1: (laughs) You did. In in keeping with that, we're, we are also on social media where we post other stuff too. So follow us for archaeology posts, dumb jokes, and more of our typical brand of content. On Facebook, we are just plain old the Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast, and on Instagram, we're at the Dirt Pod. And you can follow Anna on Twitter. Yes, yeah, just at Anna Goldfield, and I'm
2: at Some Amber Dextrous. Got in there early. I got in there super early, so yeah, I'm I'm just a sad leftist on Twitter. So that's if you want that's... that. <laughs> Anna's funny and an upper, and you can see some of her her other other work that she does and all of that and more is together at our website, thedirtpod.com. You can score some merch. You can sponsor an episode. We're scheduling episodes for the the coming year. Um, and 2021 is looking good. It's looking great. It's looking exciting. Um, and you can poke around and check out our back catalog of episodes, including the, if you've gotten through everything that's on the APN, we've got our earlier episodes that, uh, are hosted over on
1: SoundCloud and they're available on our website too. Yeah. You can find out what we sounded like before we got real microphones. (laughs) (laughs) Just imagine us recording in a middle school hallway. (laughs) That'll do it. (laughs) Thank you everyone so much for listening and we'll be back with you soon. Yeah. We love you. Bye. Goodbye.
0: This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland and the Archaeology Podcast Network and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at archpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.